There we go. Right. So uh, last Sunday, we started a new series on the fruit of the Spirit. And uh, so I just want to underline, starting off, some of the things that Phil mentioned last week, uh, in case you weren't here, the things that I can remember because I didn't take any notes. <laughs> um, the, main, the main thing is this. We're talking about the fruit of the Spirit, not the fruits of the Holy Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit. We're talking about nine different aspects of the character of Jesus, the work of the Holy Spirit within us. So let's have a little test, shall we? After three, let's see if we can remember. I know different versions have slightly different approaches, but the one we're using goes like this. One, two, three. It might not be all those, you never know. <laughs> one, two, three. Love, joy, peace, patience, faith, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. See, after nine weeks, you will know those. These are the things that are developed by the Holy Spirit within us. And actually, these nine weeks are not a test. They are not a, let's all give ourselves a grade, like last week, and then see if by the December the 2nd, we've all improved. Or whether some of them have improved, and some of them maybe have got worse. It's not that. We haven't got a scorecard for all of you to see how you're doing in the nine fruit of the Spirit. It isn't actually something that we can really strive at. I'm going to try really, really hard to be better in these areas. But nor is it something where we should be complacent and just go, oh, well, you know, I'm just not very patient. There's nothing I can do about it. I've been like this now for and years. So, hey, there's no point in even bothering about it. So we can't strive, but nor should we be complacent. It is a natural result of the work of God in us. Just like apple trees produce, you seem really uncertain about this, <laughs> slightly concerned. That was the easy bit of the sermon, right? Just like apple trees produce, excellent, and pear trees Strawberry plants. I'm, I'll go wrong at this point. <laughs> yeah. It's a natural result of the work of the Spirit within us. So this morning, we are thinking about joy. Joy. And I genuinely thought this. Fantastic. I'm really looking forward to this one. It's going to be great. It's true, isn't it? I was like really positive until this week when I realized how difficult it was. How do you get a handle on joy? Getting a handle on joy is somewhat like discovering the foot of the rainbow. Or like grasping a ray of sunlight. Or like describing a kiss. How do you get a handle on joy? It is elusive. It's kind of hard to pin down. The thing about joy is this. Joy is indescribable. And the thing about something that is indescribable is, well, you can't describe it. Joy is always more than our words can ever express. It is logical and illogical. It is motion and will. It is thinking and feeling. It is more than any of those things. Joy is like happiness and pleasure and contentment, but it's also not like those things. 
With joy, it seems that the more you pursue it for itself, the less you find it. So maybe we should just stop now and sing some more songs. <laughs> How do we grow, develop something that we can't describe and we can't pursue? I want us this morning to look at something of the source and the conditions that create joy. And when I think about joy, apart from thinking about Jesus, and of course the answer is always Jesus, there's one other person who comes to mind, and we didn't talk about this, but the one other person that comes to mind is this person, C.S. Lewis. Interesting, eh? <laughs> so I want you to listen for a moment about what he says about his most profound encounter with Jesus. He says this, you must picture me alone in that room in Magdalen in Oxford University, night after night, feeling whenever my mind lifted even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him whom I had so earnestly desired not to meet. That which I greatly feared had at last come upon me. In the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed. Perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all England, I did not then see what is now the most shining and obvious thing, the divine humility which will accept a convert even on such terms. The prodigal son at least walked home on his own feet, but who can duly adore that love which will open the high gates to a prodigal who is brought in kicking, struggling, resentful, and darting his eyes in every direction for a chance to escape. I love that. And he called his autobiography Surprised by Joy. Surprised by joy, because the source of joy is the Lord. He was surprised by Jesus. And Jesus is joy in every way. We find joy in our encounter with Jesus. And Peter, one of his disciples who met him face to face, who walked and talked and lived with him for three years, writing to the church later on says this, though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. You cannot pin it down. It's inexpressible. It's indescribable. But there it is in our encounter with Jesus, joy. And whether it's that first encounter, and we are so thankful for all those for whom their first encounter with Jesus has been recent. That's why we're so excited about Alpha, because there is a sense of joy. Or whether you're a little bit further down the line, and maybe like David, actually things have not gone all great for you, and you are praying like him in Psalm 51, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Restore to me that same joy. There is a joy when we encounter Jesus for the first time or multiple times beyond that. There is a joy, an exceeding great joy, as it says in the Christmas story, in seeing other people come to know Jesus the level of joy in our church has increased with the amount of people who have come to know Jesus for the first time recently. There is something that happens that is contagious, that that close encounter with Jesus brings to those for the first time. But there's the rest of us who've maybe become a little bit dull and we go, yes, that's it. That is joy. 
I tried really hard to not make this a sermon on C.S. Lewis, but I haven't succeeded, so I'll just own it. He described joy like this, and I just think this is brilliant. It jumps up under one's ribs and tickles down one's neck and makes one forget meals and keeps one delightedly sleepless at nights. It shocks one awake when the other puts one to sleep. My private table is one second of joy is worth 12 hours of pleasure. I think you really quite agree with me. Do you? Is that the joy? The joy that balances against hours and hours of what we call pleasure. But the joy of Jesus is something more than that. I want us to explore just for a moment the difference between happiness and joy. I mean, it's like a PhD dissertation, isn't it? So just for a moment. Someone expressed it simply like this. Happiness is a feeling based on circumstances, and joy is an attitude that defies circumstances. Happiness is not a bad thing, by the way, but it is often dependent on our circumstances. How am I feeling today? Is the sun shining? Am I enjoying my holiday? Are my kids doing well at school? Have I eaten a nice meal? Have I got enough money in the bank? All those kind of things mean that we feel happy or not happy, dependent on all those things that are transient and somewhat fragile. Joy is an attitude that defies our circumstances. We can have joy even when all those things are not adding up right. It is more profound. It is God-given, a gift, that we can have joy beyond our circumstances. I feel like this is a moment, and it will be a moment, to touch on something that I think is important this morning, and that is the relationship between joy and well-being, if you want to call it that. Maybe it's the, different, the relationship between joy and feeling down, the relationship between joy and depression. And for me, this picture summed it up really, really well, that all around of you is the bright colors of joy, but you find yourself in this little tent with your black dog. Black dog being the thing that Churchill used to describe his own depression. And actually you're in this kind of gray black bit and with the tent over you and it doesn't matter what else is out there. How many bright technicolors there are, you find yourself in the tent. You are locked up. It feels perhaps like all the happiness and the pleasure and maybe you even think joy has been somehow extracted from your life. So I just want to touch on that. I, I looked on the internet, because that's the source of all wisdom, isn't it? And you know, there's virtually nothing, virtually nothing at all, about joy in the dark times, in the times when you feel depressed and isolated, alienated perhaps from all that makes you feel happy. And so I just simply want to say, because we can't talk about it a whole lot this morning, but I don't want you to feel judged. I don't want you to feel condemned this morning. If, if you are in that place, for any manner of reasons, whether it's a medically you're in that place, or circumstantially in your life today, you are in that place. And I don't want you to hear this and think, I feel worse now, because that's really not helpful, is it? but we sometimes find ourselves in the tent with the black dog. But may I ask you one thing this morning as we keep going, is could you just 
unzip it if you can, a little, little bit. Just enough to maybe hear a small bit. Because it may be that even in this place, if you're here this morning, God can speak to you and bring just something of his joy into you this morning. So I'm just going to leave it there and say that that's something that we just have to be aware of when we talk about joy together. Spurgeon, the preacher, who piled in thousands and thousands of people to his church in London, was someone who struggled through his whole life with depression, who walked with his black dog for most of his career, regardless of how many thousands of people came to listen to him preach and how many people were converted. And he said this, Joy in the Lord is one of the best preparations for the trials of this life. The cure for care is joy in the Lord. That was written out of his experience, not superficially. Too much of our satisfaction is found in too many of the superficial and transient things of this world around us and that the world constantly throws at us. Spurgeon again said this, I bear testimony that there is no joy to be found in all the world like that of sweet communion with Christ. I would barter all else there is of heaven for that. Indeed, that is heaven. As for the harps of gold and the streets like clear glass and the songs of the seraphs and the shouts of the redeemed, one could very well give all these up, counting them as a drop in a bucket if we might live in fellowship and communion with Christ. So powerful what he says. And I want to go back again to our friend, Mr. Lewis, because these words that he spoke, I guess maybe in around the 60s, just seemed to me so prophetic. They were prophetic in their time, but I think ever increasingly so. He says this, and some of you will be familiar with this quote, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. It seems to me that speaks right to us, where everything is saying, you can be happy if you have this house, a new mobile phone, this holiday, eat this kind of food. Everything is telling us that we can find happiness, which we understand as joy, in the things that this world gives us. When I read the hymns in the hymn book, which I do because I choose them for the 9.15 prior in Maine, it makes me realize that people of a different generation did not think like us. They understood that this world is short, that our lives are not made happy by all the stuff that life can offer us, but by the presence of Jesus, by joy in him. And that it's not that these things are wrong in of themselves, most of them anyway, but that they will never ultimately make us happy. They will never ultimately bring us joy. They will always be just superficial. They will be a little bit like playing with mud pies, however much we love playing mud pies. And mud is fun and great and wonderful and messy and squelchy and great, but compared to a holiday by the seaside? 
But we can't pursue joy, because it kind of is an illusion. And if we can't create it, then what do we do? How do we cultivate joy? Or how do we cultivate the conditions where joy can surprise us? Where it can get under our ribs and tickle us and make us full of life? Conforming to the likeness of Jesus is both a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit and a decision of our wills to work with the Holy Spirit. So how do we cultivate those conditions? Going to go to another little friend of mine, Pooh Bear. (laughs) See, joy is a choice to rest in an attitude of gratitude, no matter what your circumstances. To be like Piglet. If you can't read that, it says, Piglet noticed that even though he had a very small heart, it could hold a rather large amount of gratitude. To be grateful, to be thankful, to notice the good, not the disappointing or the lacking. In truth, I think I'm rubbish at this. If a few of you could nod, that would make me feel a bit better. No one nodded. (laughs) To see what is there rather than what isn't there. To have a glass half full rather than a glass half empty approach. To be grateful for all that is good. You know, one of the things that I've tried to challenge a little bit, um, which is a very trivial thing, is the apologies for absence at meetings. Why do we always mention the people who aren't there? What about being grateful for the ones who are? (laughs) Somehow it just seems to kind of give a negative feel. At the beginning of the meeting we say, here's all the people who aren't here. Thank you that you are here this morning. That's the main thing, isn't it? To be positive. You know, I am so challenged by our brothers and sisters in the suffering church who are thankful and grateful for so little. Now, I was so challenged by Hei Wu from North Korea at Easter time. I remember her saying that she was grateful in the prison and thanked God for the one small piece of pretty horrible bread that she was given because that gave her the opportunity to share the Lord's Supper with other believers in the toilets because that's where they gather to meet. Grateful for what is. And I want to read your story, and it's a little bit bit long, but it's just so great, and I want to read it to you this morning. It's the story of Corrie and Betsy Tenboom. And many of you will have read their story. You will know that they were captured by the Nazis in World War II and put into Ravensbrück concentration camp. And they were put in barracks, and there were massive square platforms, three, three levels high, so close together that you could just about manage to pass between them. They were scattered across with rancid straw, and they acted as communal beds for however many people were put into their barracks at any one time. You couldn't even sit upright. Your head would hit on the bed above you. And so they found themselves in that place, and the nausea was sweeping over them as they just experienced that for the first time. And the story goes like this. Suddenly, Corrie started up, striking her head on the cross slats above. Something had bitten her leg. Flee, she cried. Betsy, the place is swarming with them. Descending from the platform and edging down the narrow aisle, they made their way to a patch of light. Here and here, another one, Corrie wailed. Betsy, how can we live in such a place? Show us, show us how, Betsy said matter-of-factly. 
It took Corrie a moment to realise that her sister was praying. Corrie, Betsy then exclaimed excitedly, he's given us the answer. Before we asked, as he always does, in the Bible this morning, where was it? Read that part again. Corrie checked to make sure no guards were nearby, then drew from a pouch a small Bible she had managed to smuggle into the concentration camp. It was First Thessalonians, she said, finding the passage in the feeble light. Here it is. Comfort the frightened, help the weak, be patient with everyone. See that no one of you repays evil for evil. Always seek to do good to one another and to all. Rejoice always, pray constantly, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. That's it, Betsy interrupted. That's his answer. Give thanks in all circumstances. That's what we can do. We can start right now to thank God for every single thing about this barracks. Corrie stared at her incredulously, then around at the dark, foul-smelling room. Such as? she inquired. Such as being assigned here together. Corrie bit her lip. Oh yes, Lord Jesus. Such as what you're holding in your hands. Corrie looked down at the Bible. Yes, thank you, dear Lord, that there was no inspection when we entered here. Thank you for all the women here in this room who will meet you in these pages. Yes, agreed Betsy. Thank you for the very crowding here, since we're packed so close that many more will hear. She looked at her sister expectantly and prodded. Corrie? Oh, all right. Thank you for the jammed, crammed, stuffed, packed, suffocating crowds. Thank you, Betsy continued on serenely, for the fleas and... That was too much for Corrie. She cut in on her sister. Betsy, there's no way even God can make me grateful for a flea. Give thanks in all circumstances, Betsy corrected. It doesn't say in pleasant circumstances. Fleas are part of this place where God has put us. So they stood between the stacks of bunks and gave thanks for the fleas. Though on that occasion, Corrie thought Betsy was surely wrong. As the weeks passed, Betsy's health weakened to the point that rather than needing to go out on work duty each day, she was permitted to remain in the barracks and knit socks together with other seriously ill prisoners. She was a lightning-fast knitter and usually had her daily sock quota completed by noon. As a result, she had hours each day she could spend moving from platform to platform, reading the Bible to fellow prisoners. She was able to do this undetected as the guards never seemed to venture far into the barracks. One evening, when Corrie arrived back at the barracks, Betsy's eyes were twinkling. You're looking extraordinarily pleased with yourself, Corrie told her. You know, we've never understood why we had so much freedom in the big room, Betsy said, referring to the part of the barracks where the sleeping platforms were. Well, I found out. This afternoon, there was confusion in my knitting group about sock sizes, so we asked the supervisor to come and settle it, but she wouldn't. She wouldn't step through the door, and neither would the guards, and you know why. Betsy could not keep the triumph from her voice as she exclaimed, because of the fleas. That's what she said. That place is crawling with fleas. Corrie's mind raced back to their first hour in the barracks. She remembered Betsy bowing her head and thanking God for creatures that Corrie could see no use for. Cultivating an attitude of gratitude leads us to a place where there can be joy even when. Joy even when. And in Habakkuk, when the Babylonians were coming upon the land and devastating it, the prophet Habakkuk writes this, Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Saviour. 
joy even when. And that passage that Lauren read to us from Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas were held up before the magistrates. They were stripped. They were beaten. They were put in a prison. There was nothing nice about it. They were in the inner cell. They were shackled and bound. They had no idea what the future was going to be for them. They had no idea whether they would survive. But in that place, they sung hymns of praise to God. They were filled with joy, even when. And after the earthquake, where they all stayed where they were, who got the joy? Who caught the joy? The jailer and all his family, they encountered Jesus. They were filled with joy. And then in James chapter 1, it says this. You can find James chapter 1. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. I imagine that many of us have read that through gritted teeth. Maybe some of us have taken a pair of scissors and chopped it out, actually. <laughs> Maybe not literally. Maybe. Consider it pure joy when you go through all kinds of trials. Really? Joy even when. Because there is a deeper perspective. There is something more than just simply happiness, but a joy that is in Jesus. And these moments of joy are signposts of a greater reality, aren't they? Joy is about an encounter with Jesus. It's about the experience of the presence of the Holy Spirit. It is that there is something more than this. There is something more than this. And everything in our 21st century society says, this is all there is. Make this life as fantastic, amazing and good that you can because this is all there is. And God's word says... And the presence of God says, there is more than this. Lewis says this, all joy emphasizes our pilgrim status, always reminds, beckons, awakens desire. Our best havings are wantings. So when Nicola, amazing, you go debt free, we are filled with joy. And I'm sure you are filled with joy. And it points us to a day where there will be no more debt. Nor will there be any more injustice. Nor will there be struggles or pain. When we experience Jesus in worship, and we are so privileged in this church, it is a reminder that one day we will meet him face to face. We will honor and glorify and worship him forever in his presence. And we won't have to worry about key signatures or PA or any of those things. We'll just worship in the presence of Jesus. When someone comes to know Jesus for the first time and they are filled with joy, it reminds us that one day every knee will bow before him as Lord. Every tongue will confess. When we have a moment of joy because someone is healed, it reminds us that there will be a day where there will be no sickness or sorrow or suffering. These are signposts to a reality that is greater than any reality we can ever experience here. We cultivate joy by having an attitude of gratitude, but also because we abide in Jesus. 
Phil was mentioning that last week as well. We'll probably mention it every week, to be fair. In John chapter 15, it talks about abiding in Christ, resting in him. Fruit grows from relationship. The more time we spend in the presence of Jesus, the more chance there is that we'll be like him. The more we are filled with the Holy Spirit, the more the fruit of the Holy Spirit will develop in our lives and in our character. We find joy in his presence. Psalm 16, David says, You make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Our little friend says this, If you want to get warm, you must stand near the fire. If you want to be wet, you must get into the water. If you want joy, power, peace, eternal life, you must get close to or even into the thing that has them. They are not a sort of prize which God could, if he chose, just hand out to anyone. It'd be good to be more joyful, wouldn't it? To be people who are characterized by joy. If Phil was saying on Wednesday night that the town council and the person of Judy have uh, invited us to be part of the uh, Christmas lights switch on, the big extravaganza this year, because there is life when you're around. I mean, that's just amazing commendation, isn't it? To be known for life, for joy. We find joy when we spend time in the presence of Jesus. The rest of the psalm says this, the way you counsel and correct me makes me praise you more. For your whispers in the night give me wisdom, showing me what to do next. Because you are close to me and always available, my confidence will never be shaken. For I experience your wraparound presence every moment. My heart and soul explode with joy, full of glory. I think Ella's heart was exploding with joy when she phoned me on Wednesday to tell me about the grant. I could hear her shaking on the end of the phone. These little moments, God-given moments, signposts of what is yet to come. A reality of our time near Jesus with him, his presence in our life. You know, Paul prays for the church many times and when I was looking at all the verses that mentioned joy, it made me realize how many times he prays for the church to experience joy. So maybe we need to do that a little bit more, to pray for each other, to encourage one another, not like a sledgehammer, by the way, to encourage one another, to know the joy of Jesus. And so I just want to finish with this blessing that Paul prays for the church in Rome because he says to them, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust him. And there you have it, may God do it as we trust him. It's that partnership, isn't it? And to trust is to put your whole reliance upon, it's to abide. May God fill us with hope, with joy and peace as we trust in him. Amen.